This is Daniel chapter 3, and we come in partway through the story, beginning at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then, King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Thanks, Christine. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the promise of your presence. Thank you for your Holy Spirit here this evening. Thank you that you already knew about every single situation that we've just named before you. You know the questions and the pain and the sadness and the fear and the wonderings that some of us are sensing tonight. And we pray that through everything that we are feeling, everything that we're thinking, we might know your presence, that we might leave this place with a greater sense 
and awareness of you being with us. No matter how tough and difficult something might be at the moment, that we might know Jesus more clearly this evening as we leave this place. In his name, amen. Well, as Libby mentioned, what we're doing during the summer months is going through a series looking at different ways in which both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God rescued different people. And the majority of the things that we're looking at is where God rescued somebody from a situation. He plucks them out of a particular um, situation that's happening in their life or to people around them. Today's situation is a bit different because God doesn't so much rescue people from this situation, but he rescues them in the situation, and it's slightly different. One of the people who's been really helpful to me over the last 20 years or so, been so helped by reading his books and listening to some of his talks, is a guy called Tim Keller. And Tim Keller, for many years, pastored a church in New York City. It was a Presbyterian church which grew quite rapidly and, and influenced lots of young people, especially in the city of New York. And uh, if you were thinking about what can I read to help me through some of those questions that you were putting up on the slider around suffering or pain, Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, is one of the best books and most helpful books. Keller himself has been diagnosed with cancer at least twice, and it's not written as a sort of academic, theoretical book. It, it, it's written from personal experience. He's wrestled with who God is in the midst of suffering and in the midst of pain. But he's also written uh, about 15 books on a whole range of subjects. And the one that he wrote on prayer, which he imaginatively or his publishers gave the title of prayer to, so that you know what the title is. In that book, he says this, prayer is awe, intimacy, struggle, yet the way to reality. There is nothing more important or harder or richer or more life-altering. There is absolutely nothing so great as prayer. If we can't say, thy will be done, from the bottom of our hearts, we will never know any peace. We will feel compelled to try to control people and control our environment and make things the way we believe they ought to be. And what Keller's done, as he's looked at the subject of prayer, is he's recognized something that is very common in Western society. And if we're honest, it's very common too in the church in the West in the 21st century. That somehow this myth, this illusion has come up over the last two or three hundred years that as individuals, we can control the world in which we live. That because of the advancement through science and technology and communication, increasingly as human beings, we are able con to control our life. We're able to control our environment. We're able to control what happens to us. And that life as a grown-up is actually discovering and working out how we can control our lives and perhaps the lives of the people around us. The only problem is that it is a myth 
and it is an illusion. And nothing showed that up more than the last two and a half years with the global pandemic of COVID-19. Because all of a sudden, things that we thought we could control, we were suddenly faced with the realization that we could not control them. Things that we took for granted, singing in church, suddenly we couldn't do them. There was a post that came up, a reminder, a memory on my Facebook thread uh, today that, where there was a picture of Kathy, uh, my wife, uh, uh, recognizing the fact that it was two years ago today that we were able to go out to a cafe, to a restaurant, to a bar and have a drink outside for the first time in four months. Two years ago today that we were able to walk down to New Haven and rather than have a takeaway coffee from the one coffee shop that was open, we were able to sit outside and have a real-life beer outside a real-life pub in a real-life glass. And all the constrictions and the constraints that we had lived under for four months suddenly started to be relaxed. And perhaps you can think back to those first three or four months of the lockdown when everything sort of shrank in our lives. We weren't able to go to the places that we normally went to. We weren't able to talk and speak to and meet with the people that we normally met with. Remember going to Inverleith Park and there were patrols of police officers in pairs moving us on if we dared to sit down on a wooden bench in Inverleith Park. People are shaking their heads, but that was real. We really thought that we could catch COVID-19 just by touching a wooden bench. And there was all sorts of fear and anxiety around. I will never forget, after about five or six weeks, we managed to persuade Nathan and Iona, our two youngest uh, children who um, were at um, college and university, to come back home. And Nathan, because he's a boy, had left most of his stuff up in Aberdeen. His computer was there, his duvet was there, his clothes were there, because like many people, like many students, he had thought, I'm just going to come home for a couple of weeks, and then I can go back to study. And after four or five, six weeks, we realized that all his stuff was up there, and actually he wasn't going to go back to study for some time. And so we ummed and ahed and we discussed and we talked. And I had about four sleepless nights until we took the decision on the Saturday that I would drive with Nathan to Aberdeen. And it felt incredibly risky. It felt, as we got in the car, I remember both of us being really, really nervous. And we started to drive over the fourth road bridge. And we started to drive towards Aberdeen. And we think we saw four cars between here and Aberdeen in over two and a half hours. At any moment, I thought that we would be stopped by a police car. At any moment, I thought the blue lights would come on and we would be pulled over and we would be taken aside and I would be fined. We managed to get to Aberdeen. I stayed in the car because I could catch coronavirus if I got out of the car. So I stayed in the car while Nathan went in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, got his stuff, just threw it in the boot, threw it in the back seat, and we drove back for another two and a half hours, and I think we saw three cars between Aberdeen and Edinburgh. 
That was the weekend when the chief medical officer was discovered to have gone to Ely in Fife to just check on a holiday home. And as a result of having been spotted by a neighbor and that being reported to a Sunday newspaper, she had to resign from her position as the chief medical officer for Scotland. We lived through a very funny time where all the control that we thought we had was taken away from us. I'll never forget walking in through the hall of our house, and as I walked into the kitchen, actually physically standing there and just going, as all the tension that I had lived with for four days and four nights and had driven with for nearly five hours just went out of me. And I suddenly realized how tense I'd been feeling. <clears throat> remember talking to a friend who'd done exactly the same in driving to Leeds to get his son's stuff from university, and he had felt exactly the same when he'd got back home and the tension had come out of him. For four, five, six months, we lived in a completely different way because all of the things that we thought that we had control of were taken away from us. Now, we know now that had I known, I could have called it a working event and it would have been fine. I could have called it a party, a leaving do, and we could have driven backwards and forwards from Edinburgh to Aberdeen, probably every hour on the hour, and had a party on the A9. It would have been fine. But we didn't know that, because everything that we thought that we could control was taken away from us, and our lives themselves were controlled. And the myth, the illusion that has been at the heart of many people's lives in the 21st century in the West, that somehow we can control our lives, we suddenly realize that it was a myth and it is an illusion. And if we're honest, it's an illusion that many people cling to, including Christians. And sometimes the way in which we as Christians in the West think about our faith and think about prayer is actually about perpetuating that myth that somehow we can control our lives and even we can control our deaths. And prayer for many people in the church in the West is actually about control. And even though we would never say this, if you listen to the way that we pray, and if you listen to what we pray, what we're trying to do is to get God to do what we want. That even though we listen to the words of someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a German Christian pastor in Germany who resisted Hitler's Third Reich, and in one of his books, The Cost of Discipleship, he says this, that when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. When Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. And that even though intellectually we know that becoming a Christian is about dying to self and dying to what we want and putting God first, the way in which we pray and the prayers that we pray actually betray the fact that what we're seeking to do is to get God to do what we want 
rather than realizing that the whole of the Christian faith at which prayer, the relationship that we have with God, is central, is actually about submitting our lives to God's will and doing what God wants. Now, prayer is absolutely about us sharing our heart with God. But more fundamentally, what prayer is actually about is God sharing his heart with us. It's not either or, it's both and. But it's about us understanding the way in which God sees the world and what's important to him and his kingdom and being willing to say, thy will be done. There's even one school of prayer, particularly um, popular amongst some charismatic and Pentecostal Christians, that says that if only we believe enough, then God will do what we want. So if only we say the right words, if only we pray the right way, if only we get the right people with the right amount of faith who will pray the right prayers in the right way at the right time, then we can make God do what we want. And televangelists and all sorts of people will promise us that if only we pray in the right way, things will be okay. Particularly happens in the realm of prayer for healing. And I've, I've been around people, sadly, even in this church, who, who have only let people pray for them who have prayed in a particular way with quote, enough faith. And apart from that, they haven't wanted other people to pray for them. It sounds very spiritual, it sounds deeply confident, but actually it's fueled by a deep insecurity and anxiety. And it fails to appreciate again that prayer is actually about us submitting to the will of God rather than Him doing what we want. That submission is at the heart of that passage that Christine read for us a few moments ago in Daniel chapter 3. As I say, it isn't about a rescue in particular from something. It's all about a rescue in the midst of something, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of a fiery furnace. God turns up and reveals himself to his servants. And it's all about a willingness to trust in God, no matter what the outcome might be. In Isaiah chapter 42, uh, 43 and verses 2 and 3, the prophet Isaiah expresses it this way. God says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. The three central characters, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are friends of Daniel, the one after whom the book is named. Along with thousands of other Hebrew people, they have been exiled from Jerusalem, from the land that God had given to them, and they're taken hundreds of miles away to this place called Babylon, which is ruled over by this guy called Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king. They are hundreds of miles away from home, the very place where they thought God lived, the place where the temple was, the place where the scriptures were, 
where God had spoken to them, the place where the priests were that enabled them to meet God, the place that was, if you like, the visual demonstration of the fact that they were God's chosen people. And everything that they had taken for granted, everything that they relied upon, Jerusalem, the temple, the scriptures, the priests, all gone. Everything that they're taking for granted completely disappeared. Everything that they had relied upon for centuries was just stripped away from them. And now they find themselves hundreds of miles away from home in this pagan land, in this pagan city, ruled over by a pagan, Nebuchadnezzar, and they have to sort of navigate what does it mean to be the people of God in that strange situation? How can they sing the Lord's song, as it puts it in Psalm 137, so eloquently sung by Boney M in the 1970s. But how can they sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? By the rivers of Babylon, they said. We sat down and we wept because this was proof that God didn't love us. This was proof that God had forgotten about us. This was proof that if God had chosen us as his people, God had a very funny way of going about showing it. Because here we are with everything that we've relied upon stripped away and taken away from us. And they began to think through, what does it mean to live as aliens, as exiles? If you like what some people put on that slider, what does it mean for being, to be in that meeting and to know how to stand up for myself? What does it mean to know how to, to, to work out what God says about a particular ethical issue? What does it mean to work out what God thinks about this situation when the world says this, but I get the, the feeling that, that God has a different viewpoint? That's what the people of God are trying to work out in Daniel. And they've listened to people like Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, where God says to them, look, this exile's got to last for 70 years. It's going to go on for 70 years. So you've got to get stuck into the culture. You've got to get stuck into the city. You've got to get right in amongst them, and you need to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. That's that promise from Jeremiah 29, where God says to his people, I have a plan to prosper you and not to harm you. I've got things that are going to be amazing for you. I've got a plan to prosper you and not to harm you. I've got a future and a hope. And that promise that often is, is, is claimed by individual Christians was given to the people of Israel when they were hundreds of miles away from home, when they thought that God had forgotten them. It wasn't in the middle of a worship service. It wasn't in the middle of Soul Survivor or Magnitude or Keswick or New Wine. It was when they thought that God had turned the lights off and had forgotten about them. That is when that promise came. And the book of Daniel is often held up as a book where, where God's people never compromise. That's not actually true. If you read through Daniel chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, you see that actually the people of God, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do compromise. They compromise on careers. They compromise on jobs. They compromise probably on clothes. Do you notice the, the, the reference to their robes and their turbans? They dress like pagans. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't actually their Hebrew names. We know them by those names, but they were Hanani. 
They were Mishael. They were Azariah. Those were their Hebrew names. But they'd compromised. They'd compromised on education. They'd compromised on a career. They'd compromised on all sorts of things, being promoted within the civil service of Babylon and being raised up to profiles and positions of influence. They had compromised over their name changes, but now came this public challenge to their faith. In Daniel chapter 2, and the reason that Daniel is able to, to rise to prominence is that the king has a dream. And the king wants his dream to be interpreted. So he goes to his wise men and astrologers, and he tells them, what dream have I had? Because he knows that if he tells them what dream he's had, they would simply go to there were so-called dream journals. There were books where the wise people would go, and they would just look up an interpretation of this particular dream. It was like sort of the Wikipedia of dreams, and they would go and find the interpretation. So the king says, well, I'm I'm not going to tell them what the dream is because they'll just go and look, look it up and give me the stock answer. So I'm going to throw, throw a curveball in. I'm going to ask them to name the dream as well as the interpretation. And Daniel is the only person who's able to tell the king the dream and the interpretation. And sort of emboldened by the dream, Nebuchadnezzar thinks, well, how can I get the people united? How can we get the people together? How can we get them united around a common cause and culture and something? I know what. I'll do what it said in the dream. And in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt that he'd built this massive column, 90 feet high with gold on the top. And it was nine feet wide. But in the dream... It had had feet of clay. It was weak, and the, 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 it had fallen over. So Nebuchadnezzar thought, well, I'm not daft. I'm not as daft as I look. I'm going to build a column, but without any feet. Ah, see? See what I did there? Got round the dream and built it without the feet. So he builds this massive column of gold, 90 feet high. Think Nelson's column. Think Nebuchadnezzar's column. A massive column. And he says, okay, whenever the the band plays, and there are these descriptions of lyres and, and, and harps and zithers. Whenever the band plays this special music, everyone's got to bow down. Every, it's quite sort of comedic, so that at any moment you could be going about your job and going about work, and all of a sudden the band would start playing, and whoop, quick, whoop, drop, and everybody bowed and bowed to this column, apart from three people. And the three people are Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And maybe they want to go through it quietly. Maybe they want just to no one to notice. But other people do notice. All the people over whom they've risen in the civil service, the officials and the satraps and the governors and the judges and the magistrates, the people who are known as the Chaldeans, they snitch on Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And they say to the king, you know those three... Those three that you've promoted over us, well, they didn't bow down when the band played. Now, we don't know why they snitched on them. Maybe it was because of professional jealousy. Maybe it was racism. Maybe it was xenophobia. Maybe it was anti-Semitism. Maybe it was a combination of all four. But the king is absolutely furious. There's a fiery furnace which is given as a sort of incentive for people to bow down. 
And he, he gives instructions that the fiery furnace should be heated up seven times hotter than it was previously. And then he gives instructions that these three men should be thrown into the fiery furnace. It's so hot that the soldiers who throw these guys in, they die. But something unusual and significant happens to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because as they're thrown in, all of a sudden the king sees that there's not just three men in the fire. And he says, didn't we throw three people in the fire? Because I can see four. And the fourth person who's amongst them is one who is like the son of the gods. And he's been thrown already by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's statement before they were thrown in the fire. Where in verses 16 and 17, they have made this remarkable statement of faith. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God that we serve is able to deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. So before they're thrown into the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have said, we believe that God can rescue us. We believe that God will rescue us. But even if God does not, we will not bow down. Because they will not break the first and the second commandments that the people of Israel had received via Moses. You shall not worship any god but me, and you will not bow down to any idol. And it's because of that resolve, it's because of that courage, it's because of that integrity that then they see a fourth one, like a son of the gods, walking in the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar is amazed. He commands Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be brought out of the furnace. And the description is that there was no burns on their skin, no hair that's been singed, no clothes burned, or even a smell of fire. Nebuchadnezzar is amazed and proclaims that no one should say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He isn't converted but he is impressed. So what are the lessons for us tonight? Well, firstly, are we willing to trust God and to keep on trusting him even when our prayers are not answered in the way that we think they should be? When circumstances or events happen to us or people that we know and people that we love which are not what we think should be happening? Are we willing to still trust God? Are we willing to trust God irrespective of the outcome? To submit our lives, to recognize that being a follower of Jesus Christ is learning to submit to his will, not to get him to do ours. What are the areas in our lives where at some point, at some moment, we will have to draw a line and say, this far and no further. Where perhaps it's been okay for us to go along with our society and our culture in a whole host of different ways. But when it gets to this point, 
we realize that we cannot keep going and that we need to take a stand. Maybe tonight, for some of you, you know that there is an area in your work life, in your ethics, in your relationships, in the way that you think, in the way that you live, in the way that you spend your money, in the way that you think about yourself, in the way that you think about other people, in the way that you think about your life, even in the way that you think about death. Where actually, fundamentally, what you're trying to do is make God do what you want. And you need to recognize this evening, and God is calling you to submit your life to Him because He has plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. Those words from Jeremiah 29. And you need to resolve tonight to live for Him and with Him. And then finally, perhaps, do you need to know tonight that whatever you are going through, no matter how dark, no matter how painful, no matter how bleak, that there is somebody alongside you in the midst of your pain, that you are not alone, that you are not abandoned, that you have not been betrayed, that God has not left you alone, but actually there is one who is like a son of the gods. God's Son, who is there right alongside you. You haven't seen him. You haven't felt him. And God has seen miles away. But you realize tonight that God, Jesus, is actually there with you. You see, there is nothing as human beings that we feel that Jesus hasn't felt. He knows what it is to feel betrayed. He knows what it is to feel utterly alone. He knows what it is to feel bereavement. He knows what it is to feel rejection. He knows what it is to feel misunderstood. He knows what it is to feel anguish, sorrow. He knows what it is to feel physical pain. He knows what it is to feel fear. He knows what it is to feel doubt. And he knows what it is even to die. Because we have a God who has lived the life that we live and who has died the death that we might die one day in order that we might live. One of the writers that I found very helpful this week is a guy called Gerard Kelly. And in describing Daniel chapter 3, he refers to it as elastic faith. That Daniel had a faith that was elastic, stretched, that no matter the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, were in this fiery furnace, their faith still allowed them to believe that God was working his purposes out. They didn't want their faith restricted to what they had known of God before. And sometimes if our faith is constrained by creeds or doctrines, important though those things are, our faith then can be a bit brittle and it can snap if God doesn't conform to what we want, rather than us allowing our faith to be stretched to who God is and what he wants for our lives. So is your faith, is my faith elastic enough, stretchy 
enough to cope with who God is rather than the God that we expect him to be or sometimes limit him to be. I'm going to invite Stuart and the musicians up to lead us in a time of response. And if you're able, would you please stand? And we're going to pray. And we've already seen this evening what you put up on Slido, that there is a vast array of different situations and circumstances that some of us are facing tonight. Things that we understand, things that we don't understand, and all we can do this evening is bring them to God and ask that we might have his perspective, that we might see our lives the way God sees them, and that we might put our faith in God's character and God's promises and God's word, not on who we are expecting God to be. Let's just be quiet together. Maybe you want to close your eyes. And just reflect on that situation that is unique to you. Maybe it was the thing that you put up on Slido. Maybe it was something that actually was too painful or too difficult or seemed too overwhelming that you couldn't actually write the words on your phone. And just ask yourself this evening, are you prepared to put your trust in who God is. To trust God not so much because of his power, but because of his goodness. To say yes to God primarily because of his person, not his performance. Through the familiar and the unfamiliar, through the tough times and the easy times. Jesus, thank you that you promise not to leave us alone, but that you promise to send us your comforter, your Holy Spirit, to be there with us. And thank you for your Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, who no matter how dark things may appear, is there with us. That there is one like the Son of the gods, the Son of God, there with us in the fire. There with us in the storm. There with us in the pain. And we pray, Lord, that you might help us this week, that you might help us tonight to be willing to trust you, to have the courage and the faith to recognize that with you we can sustain and, sus and go through what we are going through. And that you are able to rescue us in the fire, in the storm, rather than necessarily being taken out of the storm. And may we just sense you now speaking words of peace, recognizing your lordship and your sovereignty, recognizing that you are in control. And handing control of our lives and of that situation over to you. Trusting that you know best. That you have plans to prosper us 
and not to harm us. Plans to give us a hope and a future. Jesus, thank you again for your life, your death, your resurrection and ascension, for the gift of your Spirit that make it possible for us to know you, even when it seems as though we do not know where to go or what to do. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name.